Welcome to Grey History, Episode 9, The Estates General. It's no secret what the focus of this episode will be. The time has finally come for the Estates General to sit. But the time has also come to talk about hunger. Hunger that will lead to one of the bloodiest days of the revolution in the streets of Paris. As we shall see, there was bad omens on the streets of Versailles as well. So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 9, The Estates General. I'm the kind of person who gets angry. I get real bad hanger. For those of you that don't know what hangry is, it's when you get angry because you're hungry. In my case, it makes a normally laid-back and easygoing guy a bit snappier, a bit more impatient, and a bit more focused on one singular objective. Getting food. Before long, acquiring food becomes my single unquestioned purpose, a goal that consumes me until I consume it. But one thing I find comforting about this Labrador-like flaw of mine is that I'm not alone in my quest for food. Hanger may be a burden, but it is a burden not restricted to me, myself, and I. While the word hangry might be a relatively new one, the concept of hungry people becoming angry people is certainly not. Indeed, the combination of hunger and anger is often a key component to revolutions. And while we haven't discussed it so far, it is indeed time to talk about just how hangry the people of France were as the Estates General approached. France was no stranger to hunger. In 1785, more than three years before the events we've been discussing, John Adams travelled throughout France and noted the traumatic conditions of the French countryside. In a letter to Thomas Jefferson on the 22nd of May, Adams wrote, The country is a heap of ashes, grass is scarcely to be seen, and all sorts of grain is short, thin, pale and feeble, while the flux is quite dead. He went on to write, I pity this people from my soul. The next day, Adams continued. No green peas, no salad, no vegetables to be had upon the road, and the sky is still as clear, dry and cold as ever. The flocks of sheep and herds of cattle stalk about the fields like droves of walking skeletons. This description might have an apocalyptic flavour to it. The images of skeletons walking a wasteland might conjure visions of a dystopian sci-fi film or one of the best video games of all time. But this hardship, this suffering that John Adams describes in 1785, was nothing compared to the calamity the French people endured in 1788 and 1789. The French people on the eve of the revolution spent what would be considered today an extraordinary amount of their income on food, roughly 50%. I personally cannot fathom spending 50% of my income on food alone, especially food as uninteresting as bread. To make matters worse, that percentage of household expenditure was on the rise. 
grain prices had increased 60% in the 50 years from 1730 to 1789, while wages had only increased by 22% over that same time period. Food, in short, was getting more expensive for the average Frenchman, and it was already pretty damn expensive. Importantly, that 50% household figure, well, that was in the good times. 1788 was not a good time. On the 13th of July, 1788, just more than a month after the Day of Tiles in Grenoble, the majority of France experienced what would be called today an act of God. Its ramifications would imply it was actually an act of the devil. A hailstorm ripped through large swathes of the countryside, and as stones of ice fell to the ground, so did the prospects of good fortune for the French peasantry. The crop type was irrelevant. The hailstones, the size of golf balls, destroyed everything in their path. Apples, olives, grapes, wheat, they all succumbed to the ice. Animals were not spared either. The countryside was littered with dead rabbits and birds who were unlucky enough to be struck. The storm wrecked havoc, and it wrecked havoc on a nation which, at this point in time, was an agrarian society. In some areas, more than a third of the crop was destroyed. With such quantities of crops destroyed, day labourers found work difficult to obtain, and those that could find work soon found food to be unaffordable as scarcity drove prices skyward. The wealthier peasant landlords, who would normally employ day labourers, were now concerned not with who to employ, but with how to avoid bankruptcy. Greater indebtedness was the only substance they were consuming. This misery was soon rampant throughout the countryside, and the flow-on effects to the cities were inevitable. The reduction of disposable income hit the factory workers in regional capitals hard. Come winter, 80,000 workers were unemployed in an ever-volatile Paris, while half the looms of Ames, Lyon, Lille, Troyes, Carcassonne and Roux lay dormant. So many idle hands. So many hungry stomachs. So many ingredients for a delicious recipe for disaster. It was the last thing the French government needed more of. The French government was, after all, already facing significant headwinds. The suppression of the parlements had led to revolts and bloodshed throughout the country. Pamphlets and publications had energised the Third Estate to make political demands that were once unthinkable. Bankruptcy loomed on the horizon and anarchy awaited should it dawn. Nobles and commoners were fighting in the streets. Already, one could paint a convincing story as to why chaos was about to engulf the French state. And now, add into that mix, hunger. For throughout this whole period of time, the people had been increasingly hungry. In the summer of 1787, shortly after Brienne took office and before the fight with the Parlements began, a four-pound loaf of bread cost eight sols. By the time Necker was summoning the second assembly of notables in October the next year, that price of bread had risen by more than 50% to roughly 12 sol. But the price of bread continued to rise, and the headache it caused for the government climbed with it. It would rise to 15 sol by February thanks to the winter of 1788-1789, one of the harshest in living memory. In fact, the winter of 1788-89 may well have been the coldest of the century, and contemporaries compared France to northern Russia. It was so cold that wine bottles literally exploded in people's basements. Such an environment meant that food was not the only commodity rapidly rising in price. Firewood and other necessities exponentially increased as well. 
Mirabeau, a noble who was to be elected as a delegate for the Third Estate, noted the following as he travelled throughout the countryside in January 1789. People are starving to death with wheat all around them, for want of flour. All the mills are frozen. Can you imagine that? People dying, not because there was no wheat, but because the rivers were frozen solid. Without running water, the mills were inoperable and wheat couldn't be turned into flour. That's almost like people dying because they don't have a can opener to open up their can of beans. They were so close to basic sustenance, and yet, so far. It was in these dark conditions that the people of France were writing their list of grievances, were clashing with the nobility, were flouting royal authority. It was also in these miserable conditions that they were becoming ever more political. Publications continued to circulate at an increasing rate. In the seven months between May and December 1788, roughly 1,500 political pamphlets had been circulated throughout the nation. In the first four months of the new year, that figure had nearly doubled, up to 2,600. As the misery of the winter of 1788-89 gripped the common Frenchman, as royal authority waned, as the debate over the Estates General's voting procedures waged on, the French people were exposed to a greater and greater amount of political material. Material that continued to define the Third Estate as the nation. Material that continued to define many in the noble classes as nothing but parasites. Material that called for radical and uncompromising change. Luckily, change was on its way. The Estates General was just months away. No one knew how it would vote, but everyone seemed to know that positive change would come of it. And that was the problem. According to the common people, the Estates General would solve every issue under the sun. Everything from taxation inequality to the bankruptcy to ministerial despotism to the mismanagement of government affairs. Even the issue of food scarcity would be fixed. Supposedly. Like Necker, the Estates General had been assigned so much hope. Too much hope. It was said to be the saviour of the people from these dark and turbulent times. In reality, what was expected of it had become unreasonable. Like Necker, the bar of achievement had been set so high, its envisioned actions so miraculous, that it was debatably destined to fail. But importantly, it was not destined to fail the way it did. The story of the French Revolution, the storming of the Bastille, the overthrow of the monarchy, the terror, the rise of Napoleon, none of these are a foregone conclusion. I may talk about a perfect revolutionary storm, but that doesn't mean that storm's going to hit. The first step, however, down this bloody path is about to take place. For the time has come for the Estates General to meet but not before one of the bloodiest days of the revolution unfolded in the streets of Paris. On the 26th of April, 1789, less than two weeks before the opening of the Estates General, Paris was a tinderbox ready to ignite. In an environment characterised by an agitated populace, waning royal authority and sky-high bread prices, a small spark set the city ablaze. A wealthy businessman by the name of Revlion remarked in an open setting how wages were too expensive. At a time when cost of bread was essentially a worker's entire wage, this remark was bound to create trouble. A few times through the rumour mill, 
and the workers of Paris were convinced that the elites were about to cut their wages. The common people were already convinced that the elites were hoarding grain for their own gain, and so the idea that the elites were about to cut wages set off a dangerous mix of panic and fury. What followed were some of the bloodiest days of the entire revolution. Riots broke out in the city, and warehouses and homes were burnt to the ground by the mob. Over the course of three days, more than 12 soldiers and up to 300 rioters were killed. Many more were injured, and Revion nearly lost his life. The event, like many bloody episodes of the French Revolution, is hotly contested amongst historians. Some historians argue that these events were deliberately provoked by the police, as the disturbances provided authorities with a convenient excuse to bring more troops into Paris. The troops, while officially brought in to restore order in the streets, could also be conveniently used by the authorities to contain and control the Estates General, even suppress it if required. Other historians dispute this entirely, labelling the idea as nothing more than a conspiracy theory. I must admit, I too find the idea rather a tinfoil hat-esque. For other historians, the Revelion riots offer a snapshot of the violent and barbaric beast that was the Parisian mob. A glimpse into the people's truer, darker nature once they were let off the leash. An appetizer for the main course of bloodthirsty mob rule that is to come a.k.a. the September Massacres. Irrelevant of whether the cause was a court conspiracy or a simple remark by a well-known employer, the Rebellion Riots put something beyond doubt. Paris was a powder keg, just waiting for a match. The impending explosion of built-up tension in Paris would have to wait, however. The time had come for the Estates General. All grand events require a grand opening ceremony, but in the pomp and pageantry of the old regime, the grand opening ceremony required its own grand parade. On the 4th of May, 1789, the day before the official opening ceremony, a grandiose procession was held throughout the streets of Versailles. If the blood-stained cobblestones of Paris were not a bad omen for the Third Estate and the Estates General more broadly, then perhaps this parade gracing the cobblestones of Versailles was. The deputies of each of the estates walked to the Church of St. Louis for Mass. As they walked through the streets, they were cheered and praised by onlookers wishing their new delegates the best. The Estates General was, after all, the body which would rid France of all its woes, the institution that would remedy the nation's current burdens, the assembly that could not possibly meet the expectations set for it. The people were ecstatic to see it finally getting underway. Above the cheering bystanders, decorative tapestries hung from the windowsills and trumpets heralded the body's movements. The parade was certainly an event to behold. But for the deputies for the Third Estate, the event left a bitter taste in their mouths. The parade and the mass that followed was conducted in a way which reflected their inferior status in old regime France. The nobility walked in formal dress. Their garments, a combination of rich silks, lace, feathers, mirrored the beautiful tapestries on the windowsills and befitted the grand ceremonies of the royal court. The higher clergy were also dressed for the occasion. They had donned their elegant pontifical vestments, the bold colours and marvellous intricacies of their garments, highlighting their status in God's earthly bastion. For the third estate, however, there would be no such colour. 
no such display, no such pride in their status or their origin. They would not be permitted to wear things that showed their wealth, their power, their community or their status as representing some 98% of the nation. They were instructed instead to wear something that fitted their role in society. And as up until this point in time, the Third Estate had no role in society, at least officially, they wore black. Black gowns, black three-cornered hats and white neckties. According to an English doctor who was a witness to the parade, these gowns were... Even worse than that of the inferior sort of gownsmen at the English universities. Even the trumpeters heralding the parade were dressed more grandiose than the delegates of the Third Estate. Being forced to wear black only emphasised their inferior status to the two privileged orders. For the deputies who came to represent the nation, this dull black uniform was nothing but an affront, an insult to their dignity, an assault on their honour, a rejection of their claims to represent the nation. The opening of the Estates General hadn't even occurred, and already the court had found ways to unsettle and disrupt the Third Estates delegates. This indignity, this slight, was compounded by the fact that two days before, on May the 2nd, the King had greeted the deputies of the Privileged Orders in the King's apartment, but refused to greet the delegates of the Third in the same location. They met instead in a lesser salon, a setting more befitting of their status. As the third filed past, the king said almost nothing, and yet the silence and the room spoke volumes. The deputies of the third estate all knew the insults that had been paid to them and their common folk constituents. The estates general hadn't even commenced, and it was already off to a poor start. Historian Simon Sharma records the importance of these events. The opening of the Estates General was treated not like a public occasion in which rank would be dissolved into patriotic duty, but as an extension of court ceremony. Instead of being inclusive, it was exclusive. Instead of opening up space, it closed it off. Instead of reflecting the social reality of late 18th century France, in which station was actually eroded by property and culture, it asserted an anachronistic hierarchy. He goes on to say... The consequence of all of this was to ensure that the form of the Estates General was at war with its substance. The more brilliantly the first two orders swaggered, the more they alienated the Third Estate and provoked it into exploding the institution altogether. From the beginning, they were stung by gratuitous slights. If the Revelian riots did not provide a bad omen for the things to come, the divisions highlighted in the customs of the opening events of the Estates General certainly did. If the court was going to insist on the continuation of distinction of orders, the question that remained laid with the third. Would they permit this distinction? Would they allow the privileged orders to remain just that, separate from the nation and privileged in that separation? Or would they insist upon a united nation, on a united Estates General, on an Estates General that voted by head rather than by order? Would the third, encouraged by the press, deem themselves the nation and dictate to the court what should be done? These were all unknowns, but it would take only a couple days to find out. Before we indulge in the opening ceremony of the Estates General and examine the disappointment that it was, it's time to introduce a new character, 
a very important character. On May the 4th, as the deputies participated in their parade and attended mass, their black gowns robbed them of their individuality. There was one deputy, however, who could not be robbed of their distinctive presence. He was just far too unique for that. The deputy I am referring to is Honoré Gabriel Richetich, Comte de Mirabeau. Mirabeau's physical characteristics would be enough to ensure that he stood out. His tall height, his broad, stocky frame, his long, luscious hair, most importantly, his undeniably ugly face, covered in scabs and scars thanks to smallpox as a child. All these features meant that he would never blend in with the crowd, irrelevant of how much you standardised the dress code, irrelevant of how much you tried to embrace uniformity. Mirabeau was always going to stand out. He was the French ugly duckling. And his ugliness, however, was not just physical. While Mirabeau could be recognised by his distinctive physical features, he was known in the first place due to his distinctive reputation. A nobleman, he had been shunned by his own kind and embraced by the people of the Third Estate instead. Known as a womaniser who would sleep with all who would let him, he was perceived by many in the Second Estate to be a man without morals, scruples and manners. He had spent many years excluded from high society, and his family had even had him locked up on occasion to try to remedy his devilish ways. But for all his flaws, for all his rude behaviour, his confrontational and aggressive style, the wayward noble did have some redeeming qualities. He was intelligent, a capable orator, and most of all, intent on using these skills to remedy the injustice he saw throughout France. The fact that his own order was so keen to despise and exclude him only reinforced his affection for the third. And, if I take a cynical angle, the wealth, power and women he could gain from being their champion probably helped to reinforce his affection for the third too. In fact, that was definitely a motivating factor. All heroes have vices, and Mirabeau had no shortage of them. Anyway, we digress. It wasn't just the nobles who kept him at arm's length. His fellow deputies were wary of him too. As he sat down on a bench for the opening ceremony of the Estates General, his fellow deputies from the third scattered. Those in front of him moved further away, as did those behind him. While he was popular in some segments of the third estate, his reputation certainly left him isolated in Versailles. Even in today's society, many would-be politicians would think twice before becoming political allies with a known womaniser who was rumoured to have a weakness for bribes especially an individual which was savaged in the press. A royalist newspaper had described him as a mad dog. Mirabeau's reply illustrated why he was so popular with the commons. If I am a mad dog, then that is an excellent reason to elect me, for despotism and privileges will die of my bite. Mirabeau was about to get the opportunity to prove it. As the official opening ceremony of the Estates General began on May the 5th, Mirabeau sat alone. Isolated from his fellow delegates, his reputation, his appearance, and even his seating ensured that he stood out from the crowd as he awaited the king to commence history. He would not be alone for long. If Mirabeau started the day isolated, by the end of the day he had plenty of company. Misery loves company. Isolation was the general theme for the entire Third Estate on the 5th of May. 
The opening ceremony of the Estates General had been anticlimactic and dissatisfying to say the least. The speeches by the King and Necker in particular had resulted in disappointment and frustration. The day had started as one might expect, with another slight to the pride of the Third Estate. This time, the Third was made to wait for the privileged orders to enter the hall first, and instead of being allowed through the front entrance, had to shuffle in through the side door. But another ceremonial affront intent on reminding the third of their inferiority would not have been enough to turn the day into a disaster. It was Necker's speech which managed to do that. The king had spoken first, opening the Grand Estates General and welcoming the deputies before him. As highlighted by the list of grievances written in the prior months, the king's popularity was genuine, but seen repeatedly as spontaneous applause peppered his speech. This applause came not only from the privileged orders, but from the third estate as well. The king's speech, however, was not the speech the third had been eagerly anticipating. Sure, he was their monarch, but he was not their messiah. The person who miracles were expected of was Necker, and this was the day it became apparent to some future revolutionary leaders that far from being a messiah, Necker was merely a minister, and potentially one out of his depth. Necker's speech was, in short, a disaster. Instead of a rousing, inspiring pep talk designed to unite the orders into common purpose and push through his own agenda, Necker's speech dragged on for more than three hours. In it, he defended his reputation, which had been slandered by Cologne back during the original Assembly of Notables. Eventually talking about the country instead of himself, he noted the challenges facing the nation. But most importantly, and perhaps most unfortunately, he focused on delivering a complex, detailed and outright boring account of the nation's chaotic finances and the deficit which now sat at 280 million livres. Necker, however, did not have the voice that could last for more than three hours in this long hall with more than a couple thousand people packed into it. Instead, the secretary of the Royal Committee of Agriculture did most of the reading after about 30 minutes. To some in the room, it was clear Necker had missed an opportunity. Instead of uniting the orders, they remained separate. Instead of energising the Third Estate and bringing their soon-to-be leaders on side with messages of a future constitution, no such inspiration was dispensed. Not even a clear, distinct royal agenda was delivered, meaning the burning questions of taxation, inequality and privileges for the first two orders were left unanswered. Necker's speech was a cluster of words which inspired no one and aggrieved many. Necker's own daughter was said to be holding back tears as she watched the speech unfold, all too aware of the political miscalculation of such a long-winded but ultimately hollow spectacle. Many deputies of the third grumbled with discontent as they left the ceremony, and Mirabeau did not mix his words in his newspaper the next day. Long a Necker critic, he slammed the Insufferable longers, countless repetitions, pompously uttered trivialities, unintelligible remarks, not a single principle, not one unchallengeable assertion, not one statesmanlike resource, not even a major fiscal measure, no plan of recovery despite what had been announced. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for the Messiah that was meant to solve this whole mess. On May the 6th, The day after the opening ceremony, the three estates met separately to begin the process of verification. 
once the three orders had conducted this verification, the Estates General could begin deliberating on various reform proposals. The process should have been easy enough. I stress should. All the Estates needed to do was confirm which deputies were present and that they had been legally elected. The apparent simplicity of the verification process, however, did not prevent the whole thing from blowing up and grinding the Estates General to a complete standstill. But before we talk about just what trouble the Third got up to, we should talk about the Third themselves. Just who were the men who comprised the Third Estates delegates? While there would be eventually roughly 600 deputies representing the Third Estate, only about 400 of them had actually arrived in time for the opening ceremony. Some electorates still had it elected deputies, while other deputies were still making the journey from the various corners of the kingdom. Importantly, the deputies representing Paris had yet to arrive, but luckily for us, their presence wasn't needed for the fireworks to commence. Of the deputies who had arrived, the Thirds delegation was a somewhat homogenous body. Like many parliaments today, it was full of a particular type of individual. No, the answer is not clown, and nor is it crook. The answer I'm looking for is lawyer. There are a few reasons why the Thirds delegates was full of lawyers. Firstly, deputies had to pay their own costs. This had the immediate effect of discouraging poorer members of the third, should they be eligible, for running for election, considering that they would need to pay for all their travel and lodging. Indeed, there was only one peasant deputy. The high cost of participation, however, does not explain why only around 100 of the 600 deputies originated from trade or industry. The second key factor was a unique skill that lawyers had up their sleeves. The ability to speak. Now, You might find that an odd ability, but stay with me here. You and I have probably been forced to participate in some sort of public speaking at school, but the people of old regime France had experienced no such compulsory trauma. Public speaking was not a mandatory skill practiced from a young age. As demonstrated even by the king and his ministers, being a competent public speaker was a skill set that had hitherto not been a key requirement for success in office, or more importantly, just office. However, once assemblies were being formed in meeting halls, once crowds were gathering in the streets, those who could use their words to electrify their audience had a unique advantage. And that's exactly what many lawyers had, the unique advantage of being able to speak and to speak well. Future noble delegates would lament that they did not possess the same language skills as the deputies of the third. So when elections were held for the third estate, the politically energised lawyers of many centres delivered elegant and inspiring speeches as to why they should be elected, and many of them were. Thus, the third estate became a body dominated by men of law. Their professional backgrounds wasn't the only thing that deputies of the third estate had in common, however. Another characteristic of the Third Estate was the fact that many deputies didn't know each other, especially those who didn't live in the same communities. Few deputies of the Third Estate had truly national reputations, Mirabeau being an exception. These characteristics had consequences. Disorientated yet energised, the Third was primarily a body of lawyers who found themselves in a situation that was chaotic, stressful, unpredictable, disorientating and highly politicised. In short, 
a malleable situation that empowered coordinated and determined groups acting in unison, a situation that empowered factions. Originally, there were three obvious factions that potentially could lead the Third Estate. Deputies could choose from Squirtle, Charmander, or Bulbasaur, and, uh, no, wait, wrong starting point of another great adventure of humanity. No, the three potential factions of the Third, which would, all in time, wield considerable influence, were the deputies of Paris, Dauphine, and Brittany. The first potential factional powerhouse was the deputies of Paris. Paris had, after all, been experiencing violent unrest and demonstrations for months. It was a hotspot for political publications and clubs. Paris was also the home to many of the intellectual leadership which had been pushing aggressively for an Estates General with double representation and voting by head. But the deputies of Paris had not yet been elected. They were just some of the deputies who hadn't actually made it in time for the opening ceremony, and indeed, they would not arrive in Versailles for almost another month. What that meant is that there were just two factions that could potentially command the Third Estate's attention in its opening few weeks. The second faction was led by the delegates from the Dauphine. This group was led, or at least partially led, by Meunier, the vocal secretary of the revolutionary Vassil Assembly. Commanding much respect amongst their fellow deputies due to the events of the previous year in Grenoble and Vassil, this group pushed the radical agenda they outlined at that assembly. Specifically, the Dauphine deputies pushed to restructure the Estates General to allow voting by head, remoulding the Estates General to mirror the Vassil Assembly. It was, in short, a radical goal. Yet, that is where the radicalism stopped. Their methods were anything but revolutionary. Having worked in conjunction with the nobility in their home province, the Dauphine deputies sought to achieve their goals predominantly through cooperation and compromise. Thus, it was in methodology that they differentiated themselves from the third key faction that could potentially lead the third's delegation. The third faction was the Brenton Club. The Brenton Club was predominantly comprised of delegates from Brittany, and unlike the delegates from the Dauphine, they had no desire for compromise and cooperation. Brittany had experienced some of the worst street violence that had erupted between the bourgeoisie and the nobility during the past year. The violence had gotten so bad that historian George Lebrev likened the situation to civil war in the streets. So, while the delegates from the Dauphine and the Brenton Club had the same goal, of creating a unified national body, their experience and their relationship with the local nobility pushed them towards approaching this goal using very different means. If the delegates of the Dauphine wanted collaboration, the delegates of Brittany wanted obstruction. Initially, however, the Brenton Club and the deputies of Dauphine could agree on both a goal and a methodology. That goal was to prevent the verification of the third's deputies at all costs. Both factions had come to the conclusion that if the third were to conduct verification and verify their deputies independently, their opportunity for forcing voting by head would be lost. They reasoned that if verification for each order occurred separately, that process of verification would entrench the policy that the three orders should sit and vote separately as well. Thus, on the 6th of May, the day after the opening ceremony, the third refused to do as they were told. The third estate refused to verify their delegates and insisted instead that they would only do so 
in conjunction with the other two orders. The entire Estates General would verify all its delegates, or the third would not verify at all. Obstruction was the order of the day. The nobility was not phased by the rowdiness or disobedience of the third. The commoners were acting like children. That's how many blue-blooded nobles would have perceived the situation. They promptly voted 188 to 47 to remain a separate order and verify their own delegates independently. The liberally-minded nobility, who were willing for the nobles to join the third estate, were outnumbered four to one. The first estate, however, was a completely different kettle of privileged fish. You may remember that there was some debate amongst historians as to why Necker called the Second Assembly of Notables. Some believe the people's champion was not the people's champion at all, that Necker sought legitimacy in his quest to deny the people both double representation and voting by head. Others believe, as indeed did public opinion at the time, that Necker did want those popular policies, and that the conservative and uncompromising nature of the Second Assembly of Notables had caught him off guard. When we look at the composition of the First Estate, the nature of the delegates does lend itself to those who argue that Necker was actually on the side of the common people, that he did secretly wish for the estates to vote as one unified body. Why? What subtle clue can be found in the delegation of the church? Well, Necker had ensured that parish priests and cures would be given the right to vote in the elections of the first estate. In empowering the poorer members of the church, he fundamentally changed the electorate within the first estate. The common priests, who lived a life in many cases similar to that of a well-off peasant, suddenly dominated the polling booths. The consequences were biblical. Instead of electing absentee bishops who were never in their bishopric and always socialising at Versailles, instead of electing members of the higher clergy who misspent tithe money and acted not like angels but demonic hedonists, the common priests elected their own. Of the 176 bishops in France, only 51 were elected as deputies. Of the 303 delegates of the first estate, 208 came from the lower clergy. Unlike previous estates generals, the higher clergy no longer dominated the first estate's representation. Necker had unlocked the possibility that the commoners of the church would control the outcome of the first estate's vote. Thus, unlike the nobility, when the first estate voted as to whether they should join the third and verify deputies together, the result was much closer. The suggestion to join the third was defeated, but only 133 to 114. There was not yet a schism in the delegation of the church, but there was adequate division. The result of all these votes was deadlock. The third refused to verify their deputies until the other orders joined them, and the other orders refused to do just that. As time went on, the third refused to keep minutes, occupy offices, even to elect a president of their own order. This deadlock lasted for weeks, and the stalemate was championed principally by the Brenton Club. The delegates of the Dauphine had adopted a more collaborative tone, pushing for a compromise with the other two orders, yet the Brenton Club continued to preach resolute obstruction and opposition. The compromises being sought by the Dauphine delegates were supported by some members of the nobility who were elected as delegates for the Third Estate, 
of whom there were 58 in total, including Mirabeau. Some members of the first and second estates offered suggestions on how to break the impasse too. The Comte d'Artigue argued that the Estates General had to sit separately, as it had in 1614, but it could commission a constituent assembly, and that body could sit however it liked. The Bishop Langras argued that two chambers could be created, with the higher clergy joining the nobility and the lower clergy joining the Third Estate. But a shortage of ideas was not the problem. It was not the cause of the deadlock in the first place. The cause was the determination of both the second and third estate to sit in manners the other refused, and thus no compromise could be found. The Duke of Dorset wrote to the Duke of Leeds on the 28th of May, more than three weeks since the deadlock began. It is scarcely possible to give your grace an adequate idea of the confusion that prevails at present at Versailles, owing to the discussions, hitherto fruitlessly, carried on by several orders with little if any progress, as your grace will see by the printed accounts towards an agreement upon a regular form of proceeding. The third estate seemed to conduct themselves with a determined firmness, and not at all disposed to give way to the nobility on any point, while on the other hand, the nobility cannot broke the idea of being dictated to by those whom they have ever been used to consider so much their inferiors in point of birth and consideration. The clergy have evidently shown a desire to conciliate matters, the nature of their order forming two interests which on this occasion are incompatible, but the extreme advetracy of the other two orders against each other has not admitted of any good effort from their efforts. Deadlock may have been the theme of the month but there were signs that that situation would not continue. The situation in the first estate was slowly changing. The first estate had initially voted 133 to 114 against joining the third. Still finding the whole monumental significance of the estate's general thing a bit overwhelming, many parish priests had followed the bishops and the church leadership in their vote against joining the third. But the body was dominated by common parish priests, and as the weeks passed, as tensions began to rise between the parish priests and the higher clergy, many began to rethink their original decision. The common priests, after all, believed themselves to be much more in tune with the needs of the people and far better at serving God's will on earth than their leaders. It was they who lived humbly in small communities, tended to the faithful and dedicated their lives to the service of the Lord. It was a stark contrast to how many priests perceived the life of luxurious lifestyle that the bishops lived. The bishops misspent tithe money. They lived in a corrupt life of excessive luxury. They indulged in the benefits of higher office at the expense of God's faithful. Remember our friend, the Archbishop of Strasbourg, who earned 1,500 times a year what a cure would have earned? That kind of income inequality was bound to result in hostility. As the deadlock continued, as the tension slowly ratcheted up, the animosity became clearer by the day. Increasingly frustrated with the bishops in his order, Abbe Barbaton stated, Upon arriving here, I was still inclined to believe that bishops were also pastors, but everything I see obliges me to think that they are nothing but mercenaries, almost Machiavellian politicians, who mind only their own interests and are ready to fleece, perhaps even devour their own flocks rather than to pasture them. If the Abbey felt bad about perhaps being too harsh, he shouldn't have. The feeling of disgust was mutual. Upon being elected as a delegate alongside several parish priests, the Bishop of Lucon stated 
it is not without repugnance that I accept this commission. It was in this increasingly hostile environment that the first estate had began to tear itself apart. As the deadlock between the second and the third estate solidified, so too did the division within the first estate. The common parish priests were increasingly willing to defy their noble leaders, and increasingly found greater commonality in their cause with that of the third estate. It's that common cause which would help break the deadlock. All that was needed now was a little bit of pressure to break the order into two. Thank you for listening to Episode 9, The Estates General. Next episode, we'll be covering what happens when the Third Estate devises a plan to break the deadlock. A plan that was highly illegal. A plan that was also highly effective. Before you go, if you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History, well then there is something you can do to help secure more Grey History. Spread the word. Tell your friends, your colleagues, your family, anyone who you think might be interested in a history podcast which explores the grey. I need all the help I can get, so if you're enjoying the show, please tell someone about it. Anyway, thank you for listening, and have a great day.